The choosing of the seven. Acts 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of our Lord. Sometimes it's helpful for me to remind myself, and I thank you, that we're in the middle of a series. Because frequently when I stand up to preach, I think of sermons as kind of standalone events, but really it is part of series. And the title of the series that we chose way back at the beginning of the first semester was Bigger Than Your Life Now. The last Summer Olympics we had um, were stunning. I love watching winter and summer Olympics, but especially track and field in the Summer Olympics. And in those Summer Olympic Games, uh, one name probably surfaced higher than any other, and one that you probably would remember quickly is Usain Bolt, the speedster from Jamaica, who was a sprinter. I would imagine the person I'm going to refer to, you never knew his name, and if you did, you forgot it. He was not a sprinter. He was sort of a mid-range slash long-distance runner. And he was from Africa, probably Kenya, because that's where most of the fast runners are from. If you're uh, into running, you know that. They just dominate long-distance running. At any rate, this man uh, won the race. And when he came across the line, you would expect that the signal he would give was much like everyone else gives in victory. Hands up. I won. More critically, it's all about me. Now, I know if I ran a race and I actually won, which I never do, I'd probably throw my hands up too, right? It's a victory sign. I get it. But on the other hand, it does point to one person, me. This man, whose name is Mo, um, at least the English derivation of his name, Crossed the finish line, and I think maybe his hands were up for a moment, but then he started doing something strange. He started going like this. And I'm thinking to myself, that's an odd way to celebrate. What in the bejeebers is going on? That's my word, bejeebers. It's a great word. You should use it sometime. What, what in the bejeebers is going on? And later I found out that he was giving a sign to his tribe where he came from in Africa. He'd spent most of his life in the United Kingdom, but he was sending a signal back to his tribe. I'm with you. 
you're with me, we're one. So here's a question for you. If someone encounters you next week and asks a question that would require an introduction of yourself, what would you say? I'll give you a moment to think about it. You've done it. Maybe not last week, but sometime. How would you introduce yourself? Okay, I'll tell you how it's likely I would introduce myself. I would probably say my name's Bob Whitaker, and I'm the pastor of a church called ECC over on the corner of 2nd and High Street. Now, I could really spiritualize that, right? I could say that's a description of the kingdom of God. Man, I could wax eloquent on that one, and it wouldn't be true. Why? Because more often than not, no matter what my job, that's how I would introduce myself. My name's Bob, and I'm a lawyer. My name's Bob, and I'm a doctor. My name's Bob, and I work at... My name's Bob, and I'm a professor. My name's Bob, and my identity. How many of you would say this? My name's Bob, and I'm connected with these people. How many of you would say, like most people in the Hebrew Scriptures would have said, if someone asked them that question, they would say something like, my name is David, and I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. No, we don't. Why? Because we're very self-oriented. Our identity is about us and what we do. Not so much about where we came from and who we're a part of. I think it's a cultural change. Maybe I'm overreaching. But you can see the distinction. I want to divide my comments into three parts this morning. Very simple. The big story. This story. Acts chapter 6. And your story. The big story. We began with it back in August. And we suggested that the big story, the big story of the Bible is about God and people and the people's relationship with God. Insert names, any names of the patriarchs that you think of, and it's about God, his work in the world, and their relationship to that God. Second, we learn from taking a look at those stories of faith by all those people that those individuals find their identity among a group of people. That's where their identity is. That's how they know who they are. It's with this people. That's their identity. It's not me and my business. It's me and this people and what we're about. And they find their meaning in relationship with God and with others. Let me slide in a quick critique. They don't find their meaning in relationship with God. End of sentence. That's more our way of looking at it. Me and God... 
That's where I find meaning. The people of the Old Testament and the people in the book of Acts found their meaning in relationship to God and others who were walking with them. Not just them and God. And the pathway to finding that deep meaning, what was it? The pathway to finding that deep meaning inevitably was service to God and service to others. Finding the deepest form of meaning through service to God and service to others, no matter what their vocation, no matter what their category of living, finding their meaning through relationship with God and others and service to God and to others. That's a simplistic overview of the big story. Now this story. And this story, you see a reflection of that. You've got a group of people who have been called out in a strange kind of way, a small group of people that are beginning to be known, not quite yet, but will be Christians or people of the way or followers of Jesus. Their identity is essentially linked to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the people with whom they serve in the kingdom of God. And that's the story in Acts chapter 6. And here's what was going on for them. God was blessing them through the presence of the Holy Spirit and their numbers were increasing, the text says, in chapter 2 daily. God was bringing into their numbers daily those who were being saved. In other words, remarkable exponential growth. And with that blessing and that success comes problems. And these multiple people who were coming into this fledgling church began to see issues. And you see from the text this morning, the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews or the Grecian Jews were not exactly the same. Otherwise, they wouldn't be designated as such. We're not sure exactly how to designate them other than the titles. But it seems that the Hebraic Jews or the Hebrew Jews were those who were especially attached, perhaps even by way of land and birth, to Jerusalem in that center of geography. And it's likely that the Grecian or Hellenistic Jews were people who were God followers in the Hebrew tradition, but actually were part of the what's called the diaspora, the spreading out of the Jewish population all over the Roman Empire. That is about as good as we can get in terms of a definition of who they were. But certainly, you can see by the designation, Grecian or Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews are just different And the complaint comes from the Grecian Jews or the Hellenistic Jews. And here's the complaint to the apostles. Look, we're being overlooked. Our widows. Okay, that's that's the place that you would have identified poverty back then, among the widows, first and foremost. The widows said to their leaders, perhaps, we're being overlooked in terms of the distribution of food and goods that we need. The Hebraic Jews are getting all they need, and we're not getting all we need. Something's got to be done about it. You know what I think is fascinating about this? There's not a lot of argument about it. Now, we don't know if there was a lot of argument behind the scenes, but as the text plays out, as Luke gives us this story, he doesn't even dispute whether or not it's true or not. He just says, so. Here's the claim, so. This is what we're going to do. The apostles looked at the problem, whether it was true or not, they looked at the problem and they said, we can solve this. Problems present opportunities. 
We want you to choose from among yourself. And looking at the common group of people, the crowd, who are Christ followers. We want you to choose from among yourselves certain people who are well qualified to do this job. First and foremost, they have to be people filled with the Spirit. And then they have to serve the widows. And so the people took on the responsibility and called out what we frequently call the seven. Sometimes we call them deacons, although deacon is not actually used in the text here. It's a later description of this service to the church. Called out seven among them. Let's call them deacons. And they said, you take care of the needs of the poor so that we can concentrate on the study and preaching of the gospel. So the deacons or those seven did just that. Now, by the way, that's not all they did. They just saw a need and were identified as people who could fill that need, and they filled that need. They did other things too. One of them was named Stephen. In the next chapter, you know where you find Stephen? You find Stephen addressing the Sanhedrin. People didn't just walk in to address the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin didn't just call out people randomly to place in their court. It's very likely that Stephen had to address the Sanhedrin in his defense because he was a proclaimer of Jesus Christ. And he probably was an articulate proclaimer of Jesus Christ. And he probably had a good measure of success proclaiming Jesus Christ. And they didn't like it, so they called him onto the carpet. And he testified. And then when it was over, they killed him. That was one of the first seven. Oh, the rest of the story, you know that, right? There was a young man there named Saul who was holding the coats of the people who threw the stones as they stoned him to death. And the text says he consented to what they were doing. And what the text doesn't say until a little later in Acts chapter 9, the one who consented became the apostle Paul. Yeah, the seven, they were called out to wait tables and they did other things too, like walk to death for Jesus. How were they called out? They were called out based on their spirit-filled life and we assume based on their giftedness. That's the story in short. It's really simple. It's only, what, seven verses? Now, what about your story? Here's a question. Are you trying to create your own story? Or are you entering God's story to find meaning? I'd like to suggest that most of us, by impulse, do the first. We're trying to create our own story. We're trying to find our own identity. We're trying to create our way in the world, our business, our profile, our meaning Are we doing that first and foremost or first and foremost, are we trying to find meaning in God's story? 
Yes, with all the gifts that may lead us to a particular vocation, but finding meaning in God's story, seeing those gifts as instruments of His grace and peace to others. Which way do we approach it? Which way do you approach it? Second question related to your story. I I preface this by saying I'm not political. You know that. If if you think I'm political and make political statements, you've been listening to some other preacher because it isn't me. I don't take sides politically. So what I'm about to say has nothing to do with politics, okay? Even though it happened to come from a Democratic president that you know very well. About nine months after, or excuse me, about nine months before my birth, a young president stood on the steps of the Capitol and uttered these incredibly famous words. You could finish them for me. Ask not. Go ahead. What your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. President John Kennedy's words have become the 21st and 20th century version of the Gettysburg Address. Everybody knows them. I mean, they're tiny compared to the Gettysburg Address. You might suggest that they're not as great as the Gettysburg Address. I'm not into that argument. What I'm suggesting is this. President Kennedy looked out at a vast number of people and spoke through television, very fledgling at that point, black and white. And he's looking into the television and he's saying, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. My citizens, my fellow citizens, do you want to find meaning? You won't find it in yourself. You'll find it by being a part of a larger vision called the United States of America. That's what he was saying. Now, you might look at that and say that was a regal time in the past and people understood that. I would be inclined to agree with you. I would be inclined to agree with you because that was the World War II generation that was still voting, the so-called greatest generation. I'd be inclined to agree with you, if you think that, that they were more inclined to hear those words, to latch onto them and to follow them than our generation now is. That's my cultural critique, for better or for worse. They're just words now compared to what they once were. I think our culture, more often than not, does not embrace that mantra. They embrace the mantra, what can my country, what can my family, what can my career, what can, oh my, my church do for me? Okay, let's make it a little more theological and leave President Kennedy behind. Before you arrive, as you walk through the back doors, and as you leave, is your primary thought, what can this church do for me? Or what can I do for my church? Only you can answer that. I suspect human nature suggests that it's the latter question. What can the church do for me? Now, that's a bit of a critique, right? Let me change the tone a bit and say this. This church couldn't exist without you. We couldn't turn the lights on. We couldn't have built this building. 
We couldn't do acts of benevolence like raise $60,000 for somebody who needed a kidney. We couldn't put on children's programs that are absolutely amazing. We couldn't teach your children about Jesus Christ is going on right now back there with kids all over that section. We couldn't proclaim the gospel. We couldn't do what we're doing without you. There's no way we could do it. You're the church. And my friends, I don't care if you're a college student and you're 19. You're the church. You're here with us. We're doing this together. And we all have to be in it together in order for it to be done. So I I plead with you to see yourself that way as a part of the church and asking what you can do for the church first before you ask what the church can do for you. Everybody's gifted to do something. There's a wonderful passage, actually a couple of them, but one of them is Romans chapter 12. It talks about gifts. You've probably heard it before, but let me read just a section of it. For by the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think rather of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. You know, the problem with reading the Bible is every every sentence I want to talk about, but I can't. A whole bunch of thoughts just came to me right there. (laughs) Just as each of us, has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it to the proportion of his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage Boy, that one flies under the radar, doesn't it? (laughs) The gift of encouragement. You say you? Use it. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. That's a really short list. And it's not exhaustive. Paul would want us to think of it as exhaustive. As a matter of fact, he adds to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And arguably you could add some of your own gifts to that. The question is, of course, in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, what's your gift? Are you using it? How are you using it? Without going into all those gifts, which I won't, let me just suggest that everyone can do two things. Every one of you has two things you can do. First, you can pray for your church. So, last week, how often or how many times did you pray for your church? I'd imagine you prayed for yourself. If you're married with children, you prayed for your children. If you got grandchildren, you prayed for your grandchildren. You might have prayed for some of your friends. Did you pray for your church?
Second thing you can do, no matter who you are or what you have, is you can give. Let's just be honest. If you don't give, we're not here. We're very discreet about this at ECC. Hardly ever talk about money. And frequently, the elders would tell me I need to do a little bit more of it. So here it is for just a moment. (laughs) Every Sunday morning when you're coming in, not looking at the screen, there's an important slide up there. It's about our church budget. We're way behind. We're way behind. And you know what? I'm not the least bit worried about it. Because God is God. And he's going to provide our needs. I'll tell you what I am worried about, though. I'm worried about the fact that if you don't see that as part of your responsibility, you're missing some of the blessing of God. Now you say, oh, that's a nice twist of phrase. Bob, you did that one so well. I'm serious. I am not the least bit concerned about our budget this year. It'll be okay. Because God is faithful. But you are the hands and feet of Jesus. And you have the ability to pray for this church and to give to this church. So that this church can do the work of the ministry that it does. There's so much, as one person told me this week, there's so much good going on here. I thought that was just a wonderful phrase. Of course there's so much good going on here. This is the church of Jesus Christ and we're serving one another and we're serving people outside these walls and you can be a part of that by contributing through prayer and giving and any number of other gifts that you see in that list. Not long ago I did some more study, you know, the kind of stuff that takes you to school study. And... All of you guys especially know, your students, so many of you. Before you go to yet another school for yet another program, you got to write up a yet another application and a personal statement and a this and a that, and it's tedious. And one of the things I had to write up before I went for this other degree was, um, since it was in theology and stuff like that, what's, uh, what's the nature of your church? They wanted a, a big, long description of what they call my context of ministry. So I wrote it up. And as I wrote it, I, I was just full, overwhelmed with gratitude that God for 16 years had allowed me to contribute to this body of Christ. Yeah, we've had our ups and downs. I know you could find a better pastor, but right now I'm here and I thank God for it. And part of the description I gave them was this. I said, it occurs to me that in the last, I guess it must have been 12 years at that time, that I've been at ECC, a conservative estimate um, says that between my ministry and those who preceded me, we've, we've sent out more than 1,200 university students all over the world. You know, I I tried to get the number as low as I could to be reasonable because I think it's much higher than that. Hundreds of you come through here every year and every week. Undergrad and graduate. And then you graduate. And then you go out. 
And to whatever extent the body of Christ has touched your life, you're touching the world through us. You have become ambassadors for Jesus Christ because in community we've been together and been shaped together. That's incredible. You can contribute to that through prayer and giving. And you can contribute more deeply to that by getting involved in the body of Christ. What are your gifts? How can you be involved? How do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is you don't ask the question about yourself. Let let me recommend that contrary to some people's approach to spiritual gifts, don't ask the question about yourself first. Ask the question about the church first. Look at your church and say, where is the greatest need? And then ask the question, how can I fit in to the greatest need? And then listen for the call. The call almost always comes through community. We call it our nominating process for the elected officials called elders and deacons, but there's so many other roles. Someone calls you frequently. Or you hear someone standing up here and saying, we need help with the deacons. We need help with the children. We need help with the youth. The list goes on. You hear the call. Watch for the need. Listen for the call. And then follow. And find deep meaning in the body of Christ. Not everybody's role is the same. Honestly, a lot of days I wish this wasn't my role. I'd like to be doing something else. But right now I can't. One of these days, God will give me more walking papers and I'll get, you know, signed out of here. It'll be good. And I'll have a free conscience, but right now I'm here. And I know what my role is. But what is yours? Yours will be different than mine. And yours, you may think, unimportant? No. I read a wonderful little short article this week in Christianity Today magazine, um, by a former NFL player who's now a pastor. And he was describing <laughs> he was describing how he was coaching flag football for seven year olds. And his son was on the team. And he said, I, I was coaching uh this group of kids, and he said, There's this one little boy that I just loved. He said, He's the kind of kid that we'd be practicing and hear a, a siren going off at a, or or you know a, an ambulance coming by and he'd look at everybody and say, we need to pray for those people. Like seven years old. He said, that's the kind of kid he was. He said, I just loved him. And he said, he always played hard and I had him play in a particular defensive position and we were starting our season and starting to get into some games and it was clear that there were certain guys who were getting the touchdowns, you know, like the running back people and stuff like that on offense. And he said, he came to him, he said, coach, I just want to score a touchdown. So I just... I just want to, I know I can do it. I just, I need to be in another position. Please let me, let me play so-and-so's spot. And he said, I said to him, uh, son, I, I've got you where I need you. You know, as you would expect from a former NFL player, this is about the team, you know, all this kind of stuff. I got you where I need you. Uh, just play there and play hard. And I promise you, if you play hard, something will happen and you'll be able to contribute to the team, maybe even a touchdown. And he said the little boy was just overwhelmed. He just wanted to catch the ball and take a touchdown in so bad. And he said he was crying. 
And he finally got him calmed down, and he went back out to practice and to play. And he said down near the end of the year, this little boy played his position, grabbed an interception, and ran it in for a touchdown. The way he described it, it was kind of a long one. Said he crossed into the end zone. His entire team went flying down to the end. All of the ends zone grabbed him and held him up and pouncing him. He said, I couldn't control myself. I went running down to the end zone. Can you imagine this big football player from the NFL? He said, I grabbed him and threw him up over my head and just started shaking him up like this. I'm thinking Lion King. <laughs> he said, and this time I was crying. He found his place. He knew his role. He contributed to the team. And he was birthed with great joy. You know, that's right, isn't it, for us? This thing we call the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, is eternal. It's stretched backward. It's stretched forward beyond time and space. And it's the greatest thing you can be a part of. What's your part? Watch for the need. Listen for the call. And be ready to do it. And it will give you more joy than anything else. Let's pray. God, we thank you for calling us into your service. We thank you that even with our our puny gifts, they're just so puny, (laughs) that you use them. Um, You multiply them like the loaves and fishes on the seashore of Galilee. They, They become greater than anything we could imagine when we turn them over to you. So help us, Lord, this week to walk out of here saying to ourselves, not what can my church do for me, but what can I do for my church, the body of Christ? Make that part of our life, Lord, so that because we think that way and because we act that way, your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Let's respond in worship.